Here we go. Here's the unjust steward. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him, said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master's taking the stewardship away from me. I can't dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their homes. So he called every one of the masters, his master's debtors, to him. He said to the first, how much do you owe, my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said, Take your bill, sit down, quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unrighteous steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is an another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We see here that Jesus teaches us a lesson on how to use money and that we can even learn something from a rascal like this unjust steward. Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples there in the first verse of chapter 16. But the Pharisees also heard this and they were offended by what he taught in verse 14. Now Jesus he did not commend the unjust steward's dishonesty here. He commended his preparation and planning for future days. See, he was going to lose his job, and this guy, again, still did dishonestly. He was unrighteous at the beginning. That's why he lost his job. And then when he finds out he's going to leave, he goes and he's dishonest again and cuts these people's bills, hoping that they're going to take care of him whenever he gets out of um, this job sounds like uh, some of our political people, right, in government. Uh, 
<clears throat> but this is the, the, the point of the, the parable here, that he commends his future preparation. His Lord and Master here specifically calls him an unjust steward. He admits that the man was unrighteous and did wrong and, and uh, didn't treat him right in his business affairs for him. Now, we don't want to imitate his methods, but we want to imitate his resolve for the future. You see, we want to plan for the future. The same way this guy did this to do dishonest things, we ought to have this to do good things for the kingdom and for the church and for God so that we can advance the kingdom and see souls won and go into heaven. Now, worldly men are more clever, prudent, and wise about making money than members of the church or about laying up true treasures in heaven. But we need to start learning that we need to be laying up those treasures in heaven. Businessmen in the world are many times wiser, more prudent than those in the church. And Jesus is telling us that we can learn from the way that they prepare for the future. People often say the church is not a business. But it is the business. You see, it's the Lord's business. And we need to be about his business Let's see what we can learn today about stewardship and building for the future. First off, beware that we do not draw from this parable lessons which our Lord never meant to teach. First off, this steward was accused of wasting his master's good there in verse 1. <clears throat> he says there, there was a certain rich man who was a steward and was a an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So before he even does what he does with his debtors, he was already doing dishonest things. What he was doing, not quite sure what he was doing, but maybe he was pilfering a little bit. He thought, hmm, I did good for my master there. I'll take a couple of these uh, silver coins and put them in my pocket or something. And somehow he was not doing things that were right at the beginning. And that's why the accusations came and said, hey, you're being unrighteous. You're not doing right. Give an account. Tell me what's going on here. And then he told him that he was going to lose his stewardship. Now, Jesus would never commend or promote this practice. We are stewards of God's wealth. And if we waste it or misuse it, we shall be called upon to give an accounting, just like this steward here in this parable. Someday we're going to stand before God and give a reckoning. We're going to have to give an accounting of what we have done in this life. Secondly, this steward, while he was still steward, had authority of a steward. And he went to his master's debtors and settled their debts for less than he owed. Now, the parable here gives two but who knows how many debtors the master had. There could have been a lot more than two. But we see the first debtor owed his master a hundred measures of oil. That's a lot of oil. That's about 600 gallons of oil. And what does he tell this guy to do? Sit down and change it to 50. So half of what this guy owed, half of the oil, now he only owes 300 gallons of oil instead of the 600. That's a lot of money that he's cutting off of this guy's bill. 
The second debtor, he owed his master a, a hundred measures of wheat. That's a lot of wheat. That's a lot of fields full of wheat. And he tells him to sit down and make the bill that he owed 80. So he forgave that guy 20% of all the wheat that he was supposed to give to the master. Again, a large sum of money. And these are just two examples. I think there were probably more, but these are given enough to be able to show this guy's not doing right, okay? But you see, Jesus would never teach us that it's okay to rob rich Peter to pay poor Paul. But even some rascals, they show more foresight and forethought than some believers do. Think of it this way. A government official may sometimes give a favorable decision to a big business with the hope or promise of obtaining a position with that business after they leave office. It's unjust, but it's looking out for the future. And a lot of the politicians, they do that. We know they do. They'll do something good for big business over here, and uh, they want to get a job. They want to work for these people. Now, God hates this. He doesn't like us doing that. But also, the same goes the other way with these government officials. Some may render an unjust decision against big business. Wasn't fair for them to render that decision against big business that way. But why do they do it? Because they do it for some special interest group in order to obtain their support so that they can get reelected and be in office more. And we know people do that all the time as far as government officials. It's like Jesse James. He robbed a lot of banks and trains, but he gave some of it to, to make friends, didn't he? Now, Jesus does not condone robbing banks and trains. And he does condemn the covetousness of many people. That's why the Pharisees here were offended by this parable in verse 14. The Pharisees had wasted their God-given stewardship. And they didn't like what Jesus was saying because they realized it was hitting them. You know, another person that would uh, rob from the rich and give to the poor, uh, an archer, Robin Hood, he would do that, right? Again, was that right for him to go and steal? from the rich people and give it to the poor. I guess if you're a peasant and you don't have anything and they're overtaxing you or whatever, you'll be like, come on, I want my share. Give me some of that. But that wasn't the right thing to do, to go and, to go and steal off of somebody to give to another. And God would never want us doing that. And here this unjust steward was doing that to his master he didn't do fairly. That's why he was losing his job. And then when he finds out he's losing it, he plans for the future, hoping these people will give him a job and cuts their bills even more. <clears throat> Secondly, here we see our second major point. The first and greatest lesson taught is the wisdom of providing against future judgment. You see, wicked as this steward was, he had an eye for the future. He was looking out for himself. Hey, what am I going to do when I lose this job? Remember, he said, I'm not strong enough to go dig. And I'm more or less too proud and everything to go stand out on a corner and beg. So I know what I'll do. 
I'll make some planning and I'll prepare and I'll go and cut these people's debts and hope that then they'll look favorably when I lose my job and give me a job or take me into their home and give me some food or help me out. You see, it was his resolving there. Do you know what you're going to do for the kingdom of God? Have you resolved? Have you looked and said, God, okay, here I am, and I'm going to resolve. Just as much as this guy resolved to do evil and bad, are we resolving to do good so that we can advance the kingdom and see souls won for the kingdom and strengthening the church? You, you, you see what Jesus is saying here? Are you planning now to go to heaven? And if you are, are you planning now to take as many people as you can there with you by your example, being salt and light, by your going out and evangelizing and telling people the gospel and the good news of the gospel? Second sub-point here is the unjust steward put a plan into motion. He used his position as steward while he still had it to make friends with his master's debtors. He went to them, renegotiated their contracts to pay his master, all in favor of the debtors, hoping that he, again, when put out of the stewardship, would be taken in or find a favorable job. It took boldness. It took planning. It took his personal attention to do this. But when he lost his stewardship, he had friends to whom he could turn. And though what he had done was unjust, for he stole from the rich to give to the poor, in verse 8 there, notice what his master says to him. He praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. He said, you're a rascal. You really are shrewd here. You know, look at what you did. You know, and he had to say, hey, you know, what can he do now? He was steward. He cut the bills. Is he going to go back and say, hey, my steward was a creep. Uh, I want that money back. It was too late. That guy was the steward with the authority of the master to do what he did, and he did it. How can we make for ourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness, with money and things that are going to burn up and that are going to, moss going to eat them and they're going to rust and they're going to fall apart. You see, it should never be suggested that if a man should acquire wealth by unjust means that he may sanctify it by giving some of it to the poor or maybe giving some of it to the church, making a nice donation if it's gotten dishonestly, it must be returned to those from whom it was taken. And if they are dead now, then you should give it back to their heirs. Well, what about uh, businesses that engage in practices which harm people? You know, the best that those people can do is try to make some type of honest effort to make compensation to those whom they've harmed. And you're probably saying, Dave, what in the world are you talking about? Well, here's an example. If I sell alcoholic drink to someone who's had too much to drink, and then they go get in their car and they run somebody over or cause a crash and hurt somebody, should I not be responsible because I gave them that drink to take care of that? 
lot of you are sitting there, you're like, I don't want to answer this. Yeah, we should. Our country here in the last five, ten years, you know what it's done to the big tobacco companies? They've made them make, make set, uh, settlements to the states and to individuals for selling a product that they knew caused cancer, hurt people, caused illnesses, and even caused death and cancer and so forth. And they've made them give tons of money. Why? Because they made money off of something that was hurting people and they had to make restitution for it. Well, what did Jesus mean when he said, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Mammon of righteousness, that, that's kind of just like a phrase for our money. You know, and can we do bad with our money? Yeah. But can we do good? Can we give properly to the kingdom? Can we take care of our family? Can we help people when we see them in need? Can we support missions and orphanages and different things to be able to help strengthen the kingdom and advance it? Yes, we can. You see, now, this mammon of unrighteousness that when it fails, they'll receive you into their eternal dwellings. This could mean the poor that maybe you've been able to revive or to help with your money. And you may say, well, what if we die before we're able to help the poor? Well, God can judge your intentions and your heart and what you wanted to do and what you wanted to accomplish. But certainly not all of those whom we have revived or helped will be saved and go to heaven. But because we don't think they're going to go to heaven, should we not give and not try to help them? That may open up the very door to be able to preach the gospel to them and see them one to the kingdom. And without a doubt, those who have been helped in some way in this life, who are in heaven, they'll greet us. They'll welcome us with hugs and warm embraces when they see us in heaven and they'll say, you're that church that was given to this mission. You were the ones that helped us so that I was able to grow up and have medicine and clothes and have the gospel taught to me and become a Christian. You see, the mammon of unrighteousness will not receive us into the eternal dwellings, but it's what we do now with the mammon of unrighteousness and winning people to the kingdom and souls, they're going to be the ones who are going to welcome us into heaven when we get there. What Jesus is saying is to use our worldly wealth to win our friends so that when money is a thing of the past, just of this world, that again, we may be received into eternal homes. You see, it's not what you're doing with a million if riches would e'er be your lot, but it's what you're doing at present with the dollar and with the quarter that you got. The they here in verse nine probably refers to those that we've been able to help or possibly it could be God and Jesus and his church that we've been able to help and strengthen so that we could advance the cause of Christ. The greatest difference between 
this unjust steward and a faithful Christian is the method used. The means are the same, money. Only the methods are different. One was an unrighteous steward. The other person is a righteous Christian trying to see people one to the kingdom. Our third major point is lessons our text shows us about responsible stewardship. I, I believe I only have four mentioned here in my notes. There's a lot more, but these will help you see here some responsible stewardship that the Bible teaches us. One, we must be faithful. A steward must be faithful, must be someone who's trustworthy. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. We need to be trustworthy in what we're doing. If somebody's given us a job and giving us monies and so forth, you know, you ought to be keeping track and have all the receipts and have the books in order so that you're above board and somebody can't blame you and say, hey, you embezzled this money or you did this and that. And a lot of times we hear on the news different people that think they have a trustworthy employee and what happens? They go and take all the funds and go down to the gambling place and they had a gambling addiction and they gamble all the money of the company away and the company has to be sold and it's lost. And, you know, so there's people that don't do right with people's money, but we need to make sure that we're doing what's right, that we're faithful because we're going to stand before God in the judgment. We must give an account. Secondly, we all one day will stand before God at the judgment, give an accounting of the things done in the flesh this would include our stewardship. Many scriptures teach this. Romans 2, 5, and 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Hebrews 9, 27, Revelation 20, verse 12. And I know there's others that would teach this. We're going to stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat. We're going to give an account of what we've done. We're going to give account for every careless word we've said, scriptures teach. Our stewardship definitely is going to include money. <clears throat> Are you dealing accurately with your tithes and with your offerings to God? Remember what the prophet Malachi said in Malachi 3.8. He said, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? And he says, in tithes. And offerings. The scriptures give examples of tithing in the patriarchal wage with Abraham and also with Jacob, the Mosaic wage, the second dispensation, the Levitical law. It goes and teaches tithing, and the money ought to be brought to the temple or to the tabernacle so that there's food and so forth and money to be able to operate things. And even in the New Testament, in Hebrews. Chapter 7, verses 4 through 10, looking back at Melchizedek and how Abraham gave to Melchizedek, Christ is the uh, anti-type. He's the, the, the type there fulfilled. He's our Melchizedek. And the new covenant and age is far superior than the Mosaical age. And if they gave a tithe back then, then that should be a starting point for us, and we ought to give. The Jews who gave their tithes regularly in the first century, 
they wouldn't have given less than a tithe to the church with all of its blessings and all, everything being better than what they had in the Mosaic law. They would have at least given that plus. And God gives us a plan for giving in the New Testament. God is the one who gives wealth. And we have a promissory note signed by the creator of the universe. Therefore, you can give systematically to him. It's a partnership. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. If you have your scriptures there, you can flip. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1 and 2 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. You see, these verses tell us here that God has a financial plan for us. First off, we see that we should give periodically, every first day, every first day of the week, every Sunday. It should be a personal thing. Let each one of you do this. And it should be proportionate. Give as you're prospered. So we all make a different amount of money. God doesn't say, each one of you have to give $50. No, it's how you're prospered. Then you give your offerings. So it could be different for all of us. <clears throat> and then we need to give preventively. So no collections have to be made. It says when he comes there. You see, we need to give preventively so that we have money in the coffers and we have monies available, again, to pay all of our bills and so forth, but to be able to help and to do things. Um, with what's happened over there in the Ukraine, the men have been talking, and um, we're going to give thousands of dollars to those people over there through IDES to be able to help them. Uh, what are the numbers now up to, Covey? I mean, it's 50,000 people that are dead, and there's hundreds of thousands of people that have no homes. I don't know if you've seen some of the pictures. and You know, a man sitting there holding his daughter's hand, you know, in the, covered in the rubble. You know, these people have been devastated. They don't have the money to build buildings and so forth the way we do. And even in our country in the past, we had to learn how to build structures that would be able to uh, withstand these type of earthquakes. And this was a devastating thing there for Turkey and the refugees that had already had come for Syria. And there's all these people uh, displaced. They have no place to live. They don't have food. They don't have medicine, uh, clothing. Everything that they had has been destroyed. So here's something where preventively we have some money at store that we can go ahead and send to IDES to get over there quickly to be able to help these people. That's being good stewards. Who knows what people over there we may be able to help, and someday they may thank us in heaven for things that we're trying to accomplish, not for our glory, but for God's glory. You see, we just need to be doing these things, and when we've done everything that we can do, it's, it's what we should have been doing anyway. You see, we're in a partnership with God, so let's do what we can while we can. We are also to prepare for eternal dwellings. How? By helping those 
who are in need with what we have. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Here would be an example of this. Maybe think, uh, Sarah, I, I think you probably do a lot of this type of thinking, you and your husband right now. When you're leaving here and you're going to go to a foreign country, Japan, what's their money over there? Yen. So you want to get a good exchange rate for your money. You don't want to go over there with American money because they can be taken advantage of you. So you want to go get your monies. You want to get those exchanged and get the proper money for your money and get yens. You're going to find a place to live. You're going to uh, find a place for Sarah soon to go to school or whatever it would be. You're thinking, you're planning, you're preparing because you're going to another country. Well, what about us with heaven? We're going to another land. This place is, is not where we're going to be living. You see, we're going to a heavenly home, a heavenly country, the scriptures teach us. And we need to be planning. We need to be preparing. We need to get our unrighteous mammon right now invested there in souls so more people will be there. You see, if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. So we have to plan and prepare. We are to make friends with our money. Will anyone be in heaven as a result of our stewardship? I think that is a valid question that we should ask. Another good example is a rich orchard owner sold his property, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, he sold his property and he, he moved and took all of his servants and everything and they went to this beautiful, lush, wonderful area and he bought a new orchard and it was in another country and it was in another place. And they were strangers there. They, they didn't know anybody. They were lonesome. So the master, the one who owned the orchard, he went and talked to his servants. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give you a dozen apples every day. And you go and make friends with the neighbors and with the people who are around here. Why? So that they could have some influence, so that they'll buy their apples to make their cider and their apple juice and their apple pies and their apple dumplings. Mmm, getting hungry, hun. <clears throat> All things I probably shouldn't drink or eat. <laughs> That'll help my diabetes. But do you get the idea? God's given us stuff now. Let's not be selfish and just use it all for Dave. Let's have what we need to give to God and then give other things to people. Why? To make friends with them. To help them. So that hopefully we'll have that door of opportunity to be able to preach the gospel to them. Fourthly, we're not to get true riches entrusted to us if we're unfaithful 
with money. Jesus pays attention to little things. There in our text in Luke 16, 10, he says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. This is a caution for us to learn faithfulness in the little things that we have. While they are entrusted to us, we need to do rightly with them. For if we start out being dishonest and unfaithful in little things, then we will do the same as we proceed if we're given larger things. And who's going to give us the larger things if they see we didn't do what was right with the little things we were given? To be a faithful steward, there must be a genuine commitment to Christ and his church. If you are not committed, you will not give of your time, of your energy, or your money to the kingdom. In conclusion, we must be careful not to suppose that we may purchase the favor of God with money. Heaven cannot be bought at any price. God pays attention to our attitudes. However, we must not shut our eyes to the lessons this parable teaches or the rest of God's word about the right use of money. Our attitude toward money and our use of it will be waiting to speak either for us or against us in the judgment. This type of preaching, it hits Pharisees hard, according to Luke 16, 14, which says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they loved money, also heard these things and they derided him. They attacked Jesus for teaching this parable of the unjust steward. Why? They were being unjust with what was given to them. But true believers, we need to listen to the Lord, follow his teachings, and we need to be building and planning for the future. Are you being a good steward with God's word today? Have you obeyed the gospel? And if you have, are you sharing it with others that they can be saved? If you need to obey the gospel of Christ to be saved and become a Christian, why are you waiting? The men are going to come forward and sing our song of invitation. You know, it's, it's easy to become a Christian. God and Christ, they've done all the hard parts. All you need to do to accept Christ is accept his sacrifice of what he has done for you upon Calvary's hill, the cross, and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then confess that before men. And once you do that, then you need to repent. Do a 180 degree turn from the world and from sin and things that are there and turn towards God and righteousness and right living and turning towards heaven. And then the scriptures there tell us in Acts 2.38 to be baptized. That word means to be immersed. Bury the old man of sin there in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it says, and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then after you've become a Christian, then live a faithful life. As it says in Revelation chapter 2, 10, uh, the fourth part of that verse, to be able to receive the crown of life. 